So Mark chapter 7. This is a little story, but I'll tell you, it's, it's become one of my favorites over the last couple of years because of the way that it, it depicts Jesus, and I'm excited for you to see that. Why don't you pray with me first? Father, for us, a weekend like this uh, means that for many of us, we come in with heavy hearts. And God, to reflect yesterday and think it's been 20 years uh, since September 11th, a, a terrible set of attacks took place. God, it, it, it's a punch in the gut for us, and it's crazy to think that it's been so long ago. In other ways, God, it's hard to imagine a life before this, that this has really deeply impacted uh, the way that even our lives play out in so many different ways. But God, we remember, and God, we pray for families who still are hurting because of loss that they suffered. And we pray for families who suffered loss because of those events, because they sent their own family then to go and fight and to fight to protect not just our own country, but even other countries that were being overrun by people who sought to do them harm. And so we pray for those who lost loved ones in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. God, we pray this weekend knowing that there are many in our country who are confused and hurt and overwhelmed. And Jesus, we turn your direction. A savior, a healer, the prince of peace. Jesus, our world is broken. A government is not the answer. More education won't fix it. God, more technology only seems to compound the issues. Jesus, every way we look, every direction has failed us, but Jesus, you have not. You do all things well. Jesus, we look your direction this morning. God, with a heavy heart, but we look your direction with hope. And so, Jesus, bring this story to life for us and speak to us, we pray. And Father, we pause just to even pray for those who are our governing authorities because you instruct us in Scripture to pray for those who govern over us. God, we pray for our president. God, we pray for those in leadership who stand beside him. We pray, God, even on a state level for those who govern our state. God, we pray for your leadership and wisdom. God, we pray for godly men and women to surround them and for them to heed their voice. God, we pray because you instruct us to pray. And sometimes, God, we don't even quite know what to say other than God be present and do something. And so that's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 7. Mark chapter 7, beginning just in verse 31. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of the Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment of his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And Jesus took him aside from the multitude. Just push pause right there. It tells you here that Jesus goes back to a region that you might remember from an earlier story. He goes back to the Decapolis, the Decapolis. It's two Greek words pushed together. Deca meaning ten, think decade, ten years, a grouping of ten is a deca, and polis means city. It's a federation of ten little cities that are away from the Sea of Galilee that Jesus, as he travels from the northeast of Israel, or northeast outside of Israel, remember from Tyre and Sidon where he's just met with the Syrophoenician woman, the story we talked about last week. He's now making his way back towards Galilee, and when he arrives in this region of the Decapolis, it tells us 
when he had previously gone through here, only a demon recognized him. But now an entire multitude runs out to greet Jesus as he arrives. A whole multitude flocks his directions. The multitudes haven't just heard of Jesus, but they're inspired, it seems, to trust Jesus because they come with their needs, even dragging their friends who are sick. All because of one person's bold testimony, because the last time Jesus was in this region, it was a man who was possessed by demons who came out to meet him, who was forced to live in the caves. The demon says his name is Legion, because there are many demons that are plaguing him. And you remember, Jesus heals him, and in that story, he'll answer yes to two questions and no to the other. Asked three questions in the story, he answers yes to the village, or to initially the demons, who say, don't drive us out into the wilderness or into the sea. Instead, he says, yes, okay, and he, puts, he gives them permission to go into the pigs. You remember in the story. And then the village comes and says, get out of here, because remember, the pigs ran off into the water and drowned, and that affected their economy. And so they said, Jesus, we don't want you here. You should leave. And so he answered yes to them and departed. But the guy he answered no to was the one who had been healed who came and said, Jesus, you've done so much for me. Let me go with you. And remember, a part of the story is that the village had turned on that guy. They put him in chains and left him chained inside of a cave. They tried to get rid of the guy. They did everything they could except take his life. They'd stripped him of all of his dignity and of life itself, really. And that guy is now healed and made well. He's in his right mind. And to re-enter a village where those kinds of people have treated you that way would be so difficult. And to be enamored in the opportunity to be close to the one who had just given you hope and peace and healing. Jesus, please, can I just go with you? And Jesus answered no and sent him back into the village and said, you need to testify of the things that have been done for you. And that man apparently did because now as Jesus re-enters this place, the entire multitude has arrived with all who are sick, believing that Jesus could do for them, their friends, what Jesus had done for this man. In fact, Matthew's gospel records it for us and says that there's a great multitude that came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, Matthew just tells us the multitude came. Mark gives us the details of one of the individuals who was a part of that multitude. It's this guy that they bring to Jesus who is deaf and mute. In fact, it, when it says he's mute, it, it speaks of, the word that's used is speaking of a terrible speech impediment. There's something in the story that caught Jesus' attention about this individual because as we just read, it's not just that they brought him to Jesus, but Jesus then took him away from the multitude to have a quiet moment with him. It didn't just catch Jesus' attention. Something about it gripped Mark as he heard Peter tell this story. And so Mark includes it in his gospel. And, and there's things in this. There's just three quick things that are so very simple, but I think are so good for us to slow down and remember about Jesus Three things that I want to kind of catch your attention with in regard to who Jesus is in our story. So look again, verse 32, where it says that they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged Jesus, just put your hand on him. And Jesus took him aside from the multitude and he put his fingers in his ears and he spat and touched the man's tongue. Then looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed. And said to him, Epaphtha, that is, be opened. 
Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more Jesus told them, don't tell it on the mountains. What did they do? They went and told it on the mountains. The more he commanded them not to do it, the more that they widely proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure and said, Jesus has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. One of the reasons I like this story is because in this story, this man who's hurting has friends who it says bring him to Jesus. And they do that, obviously, because they care for their friend. It's because they love him and they, they want that guy to be freed from the grips of, of all that's affecting his life and damaging his life. But they also do it because they believe in their hearts something about Jesus is unique and special and significant and that Jesus could be the answer to their friend's deep need. And there's something in this story that I think is meant to appeal to us that we recognize that we're meant to look around us for people, as Bill even just said a few minutes ago, look around us for people and go, who are the people that God's placed in my life that I'm meant to bring to him? That we're meant to share the same motivation, though we won't share the same destination. Think about it. The, the same motivation that his friends had, that I just need to get these people to Jesus because he is their hope. He will be their peace. He will be the one who, who responds to their deep need and can heal and fix and make whole again. We ought to share that same motivation, but the destination is going to look different because they could take them directly to Jesus. For you, you might invite them to your dining room table. That's you bringing them to Jesus, you inviting them into your home. It might be you inviting them to a fish fry at someone else's dining table. It might be you bringing them here even, but you and I ought to have the same motivation. It just might look different in destination. But the thing I love in this story is in verse 33, where it says that Jesus takes the guy away from the multitude alone. Here, here's what I want to tell you, three things about Jesus that means so much to my heart personally, especially in seasons where I hurt deeply. The first is that Jesus loves individually. Notice that. That's the first thing. And, and just write it down because it's worth chewing on. You might say it's so simple I don't even need to write it down. But write this down and think about it because it's true that Jesus cares about you individually. We're confident, aren't we, that, that God cares for creation, that he stepped back and called it good. We're confident that Jesus cared for the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem because he wept over the city, saying, I, I long to gather you like chicks under a, mother, um, a mother's wings. I wanted to do that. He was heartbroken. In Matthew 5, it says he saw the multitudes, a big crowd of people, as sheep without a shepherd and was moved with compassion for them. We're confident that he can see people, a mass of society, and care for them. But we need to understand that he also cares for an insignificant individual such as this man. It wasn't just him looking at a crowd of people. What he saw in the crowd was a person who was hurting, and he drew him away from the crowd. The text tells us that this guy, he draws away from the crowd individually, that he's deaf and has a speech impediment, which implies to us that he probably wasn't always deaf or he wouldn't have had the ability to speak at all. But he, he at some point has lost his hearing, and we assume at probably a younger age where his speech had never really developed to the point that it needed to. In fact, there's a very specific Greek word that's used here and only here in all of the New Testament to speak of this speech impediment that he has. It's used only one place in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a unique word that, that's being used here intentionally. 
Now, I can't, if I try to put myself in this guy's shoes, I can't imagine what life would be like if, if I lost my ability to hear. It'd be a scary place to be. I mean, think about it. Music is such a beautiful gift. And nothing soothes and calms a soul like the sound of the ocean. Or it's such a gift to sit with a friend and feel understood as you share the things that overwhelm you or that matter to you and to have them respond to that, the gift of speech and communication. I mean, it'd be a scary and isolating, lonely place if you lived in a silent world in the ancient world. And to think, if you lost your ability to speak and to communicate with other people, all that you feel, all that you think, all that you need, it's so demoralizing not to be able to voice those things, but even to have other people come to you. Part of the gift of life is to know that other people come to you when they're in need and that you get to care for them and help them. But knowing that there's now such a roadblock between you where you can't even communicate back and forth for you to express your care for them, not just your need for care, but your love for others. I mean, think about it, in ancient times without the modern use of something like a modern sign language, you'd feel as though you are living your whole life trapped inside of yourself with no way to express yourself and with no one outside of you knowing a way to express themselves to you, with no way to express your joy or your anxieties, no way to express the, the, the beauty that you'd see in a sunset when you feel awestruck and just want to slap someone and tell them, look at this. No way to express love that you'd feel even for another human being. It'd be a scary and isolating place to be trapped. And, and then in the middle of those sorts of anxieties, that kind of experience, there's this precious and significant moment that we're not meant to miss here. And that's, that's that Jesus approaches this man with compassion and gentleness and takes him aside away from the crowd. Now, why does he do that? Well, because he doesn't want this guy to become some circus sideshow. It's because he doesn't want a public spectacle to be made out of him. It's so that he could look him in the eye where the man could let out a deep sigh himself and feel safe with the person. It's a place where Jesus could look him in the eye personally and the man could see compassion reflected back to him. That's what we're meant to see in this. There's a ton of compassion in this moment present. This is a wonderful moment that takes place, a touching scene. If there was a background music track that was playing, you'd cue the emotionally charged music. The symphony would be firing, and, and that's the, the music you'd be hearing as Jesus would pull him away and look him in the eyes, and then all of a sudden you'd insert a record scratch because Jesus all of a sudden gives the guy a wet willy. And you're like, this just went from personal and sweet to now feeling very odd as we read this story. It doesn't seem to make any sense where it says he sticks his finger in his ear and then he spits. And a lot of commentators will look at the way that sentence is structured and say that it's implying to you that when Jesus spit, he didn't just put his finger in his ear, spit to the side, but that he spit in his hands. And then you remember what he did with his hands? He reached his hand into the man's mouth and touched his tongue. Now for us, we look at it and go like, what in the world? And maybe the guy wide-eyed also thought the same thing, like, what in the world? But think about it. Had Jesus have tried to explain with his speech, what he was about to do for this man, the man wouldn't have heard or understood a thing that Jesus was saying. But for Jesus to slide his fingers in his ears, almost symbolic of blocking them and stopping them and then pulling his finger out, symbolic of opening them and unblocking them from to reach in and touch his tongue, 
It was like simple sign language, simple sign language that Jesus would use without even speaking a single word, without even giving some magical incantation. Jesus would then heal the man in that moment. Now, why the spit or the spittle, depending on your translation? There's conjecture that I won't really go into for the sake of time, and no one really knows with certainty. Some of it's maybe based on old legends of people uh, with prestige having the ability to, with their spit, heal people. There's even an ancient Roman emperor who's a contemporary of Jesus who historians tell us didn't believe it and was hesitant to spit people's directions, whereas other people were looking for his spit or spittle on them. Who knows if that's what it is, and this was another way of Jesus showing that, like, I am someone who has the authority to heal because of that legend that people believed. No one really knows, but regardless of the spittle, don't overlook the fact that Jesus looked at the multitudes and what he saw was an individual. He did not overlook an individual. The crowd was caught up in the moment and failed to see an individual in need. Jesus was never too caught up in anything in order to overlook or, or so that he overlooked the individual who is in deep need. In fact, Jesus wouldn't just see people's needs. It shows you again and again in the Gospels that Jesus was drawn to individuals in need. That in a gathering like ours, that I believe God is drawn. Scripture says the Lord is near the brokenhearted, that he can see a multitude. And yes, he visits with all of us, but he sees some of you today who are so overwhelmed and he's present with you. He loves you individually. He draws near to you. And that ought to sink into our own soul. That this is who he is. This is what he does. He loves us personally, but there's a second thing. He also loves us compassionately. He loves us personally. He would take him away from the crowd in order to have this quiet, private moment with him. But he'd also express deep compassion. When in verse 34, it says that Jesus, now looking at the man, he looked up towards heaven and he sighed. Now, when you read that, you shouldn't, you shouldn't think or, or imagine or hear a sigh that sounds more disappointed, like, a, oh, like why? There's a multitude in there. Here you are. You want something from me. Don't you think I have better things? Oh, it's not that. It's not the parental sigh when you're like the third time you've asked your kid to clean the room and then you're like, oh. that's a different kind of sigh that we're hearing here. It's Jesus looking up to heaven and breathing deep. Everything we observe Jesus do in this scene, think about it, spoke to the one who could not speak. Everything Jesus does in this is a way of him speaking to the one who could not speak. He took him away from the crowd so that he could give him his undivided attention. He then, to this defeated man who, who sat in a very silent world, who could then, because he sat in a silent world, just looking at Jesus, he could see him look heavenward. And he could see him take a deep breath and let out a sigh. He could see compassion in that moment. A moment like that for a person who'd lived so isolated and probably felt so very marginalized would have felt like the warm embrace of a good friend. A, a stranger, Jesus, someone he doesn't even know, who'd give him that kind of attention, touch his ears, touch his mouth, look towards heaven, breathe deep, to see his his chest expand and contract. And, and we don't know, but there's such compassion in this moment that it's hard not to imagine that as he breathed out that you'd watch his chest vibrate as it contracted back into place because there was such emotion in this moment. 
where Jesus cared for the guy and he wanted the guy to know it, that he loved him personally, he'd pull him aside, but it was so compassionate in the way that he did it. He then puts his fingers in his ears, he touches his tongue. The man is instantly crystal clear on the fact that Jesus cared for him and he's crystal clear on Jesus' intention to heal him. Looking up to heaven, he sighed. It's this emotional, filled word, emotionally charged word, where it's Jesus now appealing passionately to his Father, looking heavenward. Please, Father, intervene. He's not annoyed here. He's not disappointed. He's moved with compassion. Jesus, in this moment, he's hurting because this man hurts. He breathes deep because it's a punch in his gut to look at what life must be like for this man. He entered his pain personally. When you think about it, you'd assume that there was more to this side than even just that, though. That it wasn't Jesus just looking at the guy and going, oh, this, is, this has been so hard, I'm sure. But that a part of it is that Jesus, in a sense, is stepping back and that the sigh and the groan all of a sudden give us an insight into the heart of God that when God interacts with the brokenness of the world, that a part of what's happening in his heart is that he's hit with the realization of the perfect place that he's created all of a sudden looking so shattered and splinted and imperfect. That a part of what Jesus is hit with is not just this man's sorrow, but a part of what he's hit with is the glory that it was meant to be, meant to be in our experience here on earth, but the brokenness that it's become because of what sin has done to us. I, I believe that this moment provides a momentary view of Jesus' compassionate response, not just to the man, but to the sorrow that sin has brought into the world, that Jesus was so moved that... <sighs> I believe in this moment, in a moment like this, that, that Jesus not only saw the misery and pain of the person in front of him, but then he would remember in an instant the glory and perfection of all that he had made and then also simultaneously remember what it's going to cost him to redeem and rescue it, to buy it back, to make it right again. You could say the shadow of the cross cast over this moment as Jesus breathed deep and sighed within himself. You could even probably fairly say that it almost sent a chill down his spine. Looking up to heaven, Jesus, in that moment, Jesus seemed to feel the frustration of the man who felt muzzled. In that moment, he felt the sting of his feeling excluded from life itself, from society. In that moment, he was hit with the uncomfortable and isolating feeling that you're perpetually an outsider. Each day, each interaction served as a reminder of it, that you no longer belonged because you lived trapped inside yourself. Your world now existed just within your skin and bones. You see, the story that Mark includes for us here, I think is meant to serve as a reminder for us, for especially those of us who are hurting. It's meant to serve as a reminder that Jesus hurts with us. That he cares about us personally, but he cares about us compassionately. There's something in uh, modern physics called sympathetic vibration, where if one stringed instrument in the same, if two are in the same room and one of them, uh, a chord is, is hit or struck or plucked, that the same, uh, because of that sound wave that vibrates uh, across the airwaves as it makes its way towards that other instrument, it will cause the strings on the other instrument to begin to vibrate and sing and resound with it. Sympathetic vibration, it's called. Think of this. I believe that this is how heaven functions. 
That when God interfaces with us, when he interacts with us, when he engages with us, that he, his heart trembles with the stuff that struck our lives. It may not have punched him initially like it did us, but because our heart trembles and sings, I think it deeply impacts his own heart as well. And I think that this story is meant to remind us of that. But I'd also want to remind you, if you're someone who's hurting, you need to remember that God can use your hurt to prepare you. And that's not exploitation, that's redemption. That's what we believe it is. That even if God, whether he caused it or not, we don't always know, but he always promises to use our pain. In 1 Corinthians, it says that the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort someone else. That's not exploitation, that is redemption, where God will comfort us, be drawn near to us in our hurt so that he can give us comfort and hope and peace again so that we can then pass that on to someone else. That's what God is up to. Listen, if you're praying and saying, God, I want my life to count. God, I want my life to matter. I want my life to make a difference. If you're praying for those things, then don't be surprised if the way that God uses you is by allowing you to endure pain in life so that you can sigh with the world when it sighs, so that you can hurt with the world when they hurt, so that you can become like Jesus was for this man in this moment. You see, sometimes the best way to reach someone and to relate to them is to have the capacity and the willingness. Those are two different things, the capacity and the willingness to suffer with them, to hurt when they hurt, to sigh with them and for them, to enter into their shoes and feel it. I think we're meant to put skin on God for the world. And if you've been here long, you've heard me say this before. This is a huge part of my heartbeat. As I view the scriptures and as I view our world, I believe that that's the purpose, the intention of followers of Jesus is that we're meant to put skin on God again. That, that we become the answer to people's cry when their life is shattered, when they cry out and say, God, where are you? And what am I supposed to do now that a part of the answer to that is that God with flesh on him arrives in their lives and that God by his spirit moves through us. We believe in something called incarnation. It's the mystery that sets Christianity aside from every other religion. Only the Christian narrative and message tells you something that the rest of religion won't tell you. Because no other religion presents a God who'd become a man to experience and suffer what we face. Only Christianity, only a biblical narrative has a God who loved us enough to become one of us to suffer and die for us. Incarnation is what we believe in. It simply means to put flesh on, to embody in flesh, to put skin on it. That's what incarnation means. The incarnation is the belief that Jesus was fully God and yet simultaneously became completely a man. The infinite becoming finite, the incomprehensible becoming so very tangible. In John's gospel, he would say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Another translation, I love how it says it. That it says that he became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That that's what God did. So that we could see him and experience him. Think about it. Incarnation was heaven's answer to the world's brokenness. And every other religion is just trying to get some distant God to notice you. But that's not true of what the Bible tells you. God came so near, he suffered for you, and he is so near that he suffers with you still. That's what your Bible tells you. That's the narrative that you and I believe and embrace. That's what we're seeing in the story here with Jesus. Now, here's what you need to know. This is not, incarnation is not just something God did for us by leaving heaven and becoming a man. It's something God also, scripture says, did as an example for us. 
Remember in Philippians, as it talks about incarnation in chapter 2, it says, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus also be in you. Think about this. He didn't just leave heaven and come here, incarnate, put flesh on God. He didn't just do that for us. He did it, Philippians says, as an example for us. Our example of how we're to live is Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, your Bible tells you that you're a part of the body of Christ, that the Holy Spirit now indwells you. In fact, Jesus as the head of the body, Scripture says that we then become the hands and feet, that we are the mouth, that we are the tangible experience that people have of who God is and what he's like while we walk this earth because his spirit now lives and resides in us and moves through us. We put skin on God here in the world today. We are his his means, hear me, we are his primary means of them experience his love and care, his grace and generosity. We become their experience of who God is and what he's like because God's wanting to live through us because we're meant to put skin on him. I am by no means saying that we are the same as Jesus. I am saying that the same power, though, that raised Christ from the dead, the same spirit is alive in us. That's what your Bible tells us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then you and I, we exist on this earth to put skin on God. I've used this illustration before, but it's worth saying again. And that's it. I have three young kids, and, and the hardest part of our day is putting them to bed at night because they come up with every lame excuse in order to get back out of bed. We have one that, like Riley, our oldest, she just goes to bed and is like, I'm done with the world. See you tomorrow. It's incredible. The other two were like... Yeah, choke colds and arm bars and like trying to get them back in bed and hearing absolutely every excuse. However, when they pull the card where they say, but I'm scared, that's when it gets your attention and you listen more intently. Because you want to hear in their tone how much of this is genuine. Because if it's just another ploy, you go, get in your bed, what are you doing? But if it's genuine, if you hear in their tone that they're genuinely scared, then I don't just go into their room and remind them God is with you and then pray for them and leave. I remind them that God is with them and for them and loves them. I pray for them, but then I stay with them. Because I understand something that their little hearts are struggling to express, and that's that they, yes, believe that God is with them, but what they need is someone with skin on them present too. And the reason I believe with such confidence that that's what they're thinking is because that's what I think. It's because sometimes in moments in my life, I'm so overwhelmed and I have people come to me and they'll pray for me and they'll encourage me and they'll say, God is with you and for you, brother. And then they walk out of the room and I want to grab them as they go and say, but I really right now need someone with skin on them here too. You see, a part of God's answer is that he puts people with skin on them. His Holy Spirit moving through the life of another person. The God of all comfort who's comforted them comes and sits with me and comforts me in a weak moment like that. You see, incarnation is not just something God did. It's something he continues to do when we put skin on God, when we allow God to live and love through us. That's what it's meant to look like. Now think about this. Jesus, though, didn't just do this once. He didn't just incarnate one time, putting skin on God one time when he became a man. What Jesus did, it was his practice to do it again and again. Think about it with each person he met. He didn't just put skin on God when he came down from heaven and was born a baby. He put other people's skin on every time he interacted with them. It's, it's, what's true of Jesus is that it seems like before he would respond with words, he would first respond with emotion because he had so stepped into their shoes and skin that he knew what it was like to be them. And that's why before he says anything to this man, what we see him do is... <sighs> 
He stepped into his skin and felt what it was like to be like him. That's why in other places it says he groaned deep within himself. It's why he looked at someone and says had deep pity for them. It's why he'd see others and it says he'd be moved with compassion. That he'd weep with those who suffered. And this is what we, the people of God, are called to do. To do like Jesus did. To not just let God live through us, but to be willing to step into someone else's life and experience and to feel with them what it's like to be them in order that we might care for them and love them as Jesus did. Now, if we do that, if we choose to do that, it is costly. And I'll say this, if you're a person who's hurting deeply right now, then sometimes it feels like it's too much to re-enter your own pain in order to sit with someone else in their pain. It's costly. But if we're doing this, then as Jesus people, we ought to walk away from interactions with other people and not fully wonder, wow, I wonder what it's like to be them. We should not be walking away from those interactions with someone who's hurting and wonder, I wonder what it feels like to be in their shoes or to be in that situation, to suffer the way that they are. We should not fully wonder what it's like because we should have been willing to step into at least a taste of it and have an idea of, wow, it probably feels a lot like this. It probably feels like I'm just getting a shred of what they feel, and what I'm feeling is not good, is not fun, and what they feel is infinitely more, I'm sure. But we ought not to walk away and go, wow, that's sad for them. I wonder what that's like. Because we'll sit with them and care for them enough to lean in, like Jesus, and sigh with them. It means if we're doing this, that other people ought not to walk away from interaction with us and wonder, I wonder what it would be like, though, if Jesus showed up today. I wonder what it would be like if he sat with our family today. I wonder what it would be like if he showed up in my brokenness today. Because if you or I, filled with the Spirit of God, were present with them, they ought not to have to fully wonder anymore what that would be like. Because they ought to be able to look and say, it'd probably feel a lot like today when Bill sat with me. Or when Lisa hurt with me. When Ruth took the time to pray for me. When Jim and Cindy sat beside me, when I watched them, we're sorry, when I watched them sympathize and care for me. Because what we're meant to do is put skin on God, to let God do what he does for this man in this moment, to let God do that for the people in our lives who hurt and are overwhelmed. That he gets to do this again, that people get to experience this again and again every time the people of God walk into brokenness, that they can feel loved and seen and cared for, and that we then can bring the power of Jesus and say, and we believe with hope that Jesus can touch and transform and heal. So yes, we care for you, we'll hurt with you, but we bring with us the one that we believe can touch and transform and heal you. And then we pray. And then we stay with them, we sigh with them, we groan with them, we are moved with compassion to stand beside them. You know, think of our story here. I like what happens next in our story here because Jesus will touch his ears and then his mouth. Remember, he even spits. It's this, this archaic, simple sign language that Jesus is using to communicate here. And then he just simply says, be opened. There's no magic formula that Jesus presents here. There's no secret combo or pattern of, well, yeah, I mean, the next time you're around someone who's deaf, put your finger in their ear, spit this way, do this, say this thing. No, there's none of it. In fact, Jesus in all of his healings, if you've ever thought about it, there's no rhyme or reason. It's not like this set formula or pattern that he leaves us, like do it this way, and this power combo will unlock the magic of a healing moment. 
No, it's nothing like that. Instead, what it is is always so different, always so varied, and always seems to be perfectly what the person in front of him would need. What this man needed was just simple compassion for someone to pull him away silently so that he knew what it was like to be trapped in a world that felt alone. Now he's safe and alone, away from a multitude, and Jesus looks with compassion, touches his ears and his tongue, and just says, be opened. No magic formula, no spit and say this. We just bring Jesus to the places that we know we need a miracle. And it says immediately his ears are open and the impediment, the bond, the chain of his tongue, it was loose. And it says that he began to speak plainly. It's the Greek word that means a chain was snapped away and broken. The chain of his tongue was loosed. It was removed. Remember, this is a real story. There's real human emotion here. Like, what would this be like for you if you're the person standing on the other side of Jesus looking in his eyes in this silent world? What would it be like? I don't know if you've ever seen online or on YouTube any of those videos of someone where they first give them, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but a, a cochlear, am I saying that right, implant? Or it gives them the ability to hear. I don't know if you've ever seen a video of someone sitting in a doctor's office after that surgery where they first connected and place a hearing aid in their ear, whether it's a child a little child that they put in front of their parents and their first words they hear are, I love you. Or it's a spouse. And it clicks on and the first thing they hear is their spouse's voice affirming and loving them. Those are beautiful moments. There's a moment like this happening. I mean, what would it be like to hear my wife's voice for the first time in years? To hear my girls laugh and my son his, his goofy giggle when he gets excited. To begin to hear music playing in the distance. The sound of a multitude, it's, I like it to sit in a crowd of people and hear commotion and action and things happening, to sit and listen and all of that flooding him all at once. And I'm sure with all of that sound, a flood of emotions with it. In fact, look at how the story closes because I feel confident that there was a flood of emotion with it because it says that he commands them that they should tell no one. But the more Jesus tells them, whoa, it ends here the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Like any rational person would respond to, to this situation, any rational person would respond the way that these people do, where they're determined, we've got to get word out. This was crazy, this was wild, this was life-changing. They told everyone what Jesus had done for him. And my hope is that that would be our response is that we'd run everywhere telling everyone, this is what Jesus has done to me. The, the hope that he breathed into my heart, the, 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 the depression that he touched and, and then sat present with me and groaned inside with me and walked through that season beside me. The people he brought into my life to walk through that season. And that's not just me hypothesizing, like it could be this for you. No, that was my journey. That's what Jesus did for me. The hope that he put there, the restoration that could take place, the new life that could be found. You have a God who loves you personally and compassionately, but the story finishes with them saying he loves you perfectly too. That's how it finishes. They look at the situation and say, it's more than just that. Look how perfectly he's done this. He has done all things well. And if we're honest, for some of us, if you look at your life today, you'd say, I don't know that I agree with that. I don't know that I feel it or see it in my life right now. 
Maybe what you'd say is, as you read that, you'd stop and go, hang on a second. I mean, God, you're not handling this thing or this situation at all, or, or at least not right. Or you're not doing this the way that I think that you should. But push pause and just remember, he's the creator and sustainer of everything. He's omniscient and omnipotent. He doesn't sleep on the job, but most of all, remember that he loves you. Remember that he proved that love on a cross for you. And if in my estimation that I'm right for being angry or frustrated with a God that I believe is powerful enough to keep the things that are hard in my life from happening, if he's powerful enough for me to be disappointed and angry with him because he's not stopping it, then I need to also be fair and admit that he's also wise enough to have reasons that are beyond my understanding for allowing those things. Those things are simultaneous truths that walk hand in hand, but we get stuck on the one and go, but I'm so mad at you, and we forget his love, and we reject his wisdom. And sometimes we need to stop and just say, Jesus, I'm willing to trust you because you'd leave heaven to bleed and die for me. It's so silly. I won't speak for you. It's so silly for me that I can spend so much time telling God the things that I feel like he's mishandling or how poorly he's doing at his job but it's something I find myself doing still. Close your Bible. I'll just comment two things real quick and then we're done. Mark's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience, so he doesn't often insert, not nearly as much as the other gospel writers like Matthew as an example, he doesn't often insert these references to the Old Testament passage because many of his first century readers are the first century church of Jew and Gentile who are being persecuted. So he's, he's assuming that maybe not everyone's going to pick up on what I'm saying here by giving these references towards the Old Testament. But there's two here that he gives very intentionally that I just want to mention to you. And the first one, if you jump into a home group this week, I'd even tell you you should read this chapter. It's Isaiah 35. He purposefully references here Isaiah 35, where it prophesied of Messiah when he comes that then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will sing. For the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I told you there's that very unique Greek word that describes this man's speech impediment. The only other place in scripture it's used is here in Isaiah, 50, or in Isaiah 35. It's that specific word that says, And the tongue of the dumb shall sing. It's interesting because the verse is right on the heels of a long pronouncement of judgment. On the heels of judgment, God pauses for a moment and inserts hope a promise not to abandon his people, a promise to deliver them, and a promise that in the end he'll make the world right again. But the previous verse, it says this in Isaiah 35. It says, Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not feel fear. Behold, God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And Mark uses that very specific Greek word, only used one place in the Old Testament, nowhere else in the New, to reach back into this Old Testament thing and say that God will bring vengeance and recompense. And when he comes, look at the healing that he'll bring. Now track with me. God has promised hope. He's, he's prophesied that Messiah will come, that Jesus will come to save you. But what he had prophesied right before that is that he would come with divine retribution. He'd come, but Jesus didn't come with a sword. He didn't come smiting and cutting people. So where is the divine retribution that God had promised? Well, Jesus didn't come to bring divine retribution. Jesus came to bear it. Think of that. He didn't come to bring it at cost and expense to us. He came to bear it 
the divine retribution of God, the recompense of God. And because he would bear it for us, we would escape the judgment of God and instead receive the favor and mercy and grace of God. Do you see the gospel in this? This is the Christian message. This is what Mark is pulling the audience back towards to show them. You think you have this figured out. We think we've got this figured out in our workspace approach to God. And he's stopping us and saying, just breathe deep for a moment and remember. Yes, God will judge the world and make it right. But Christ bore that for us. And because of that, we get to experience the love and the grace and the mercy of God that we find in Christ. The gospel is present here. But did you catch the other reference that I think Mark is intentionally making from the Old Testament? It's from the book of Genesis, where it says that God saw everything that he made and he saw that it was good. The way that this sentence is structured, where it says he's, he's done all things well, seems to basically mirror what God said as he stepped back and looked at a perfect creation. Because when God would arrive in a broken creation, how God would interact with it, how God would redeem and restore it, would make it so that it would reflect what looked so good in the garden, where even humanity itself would say, and it was so good. He made it right. He's done all things well. In the garden, he would say that. He'd cease from his work and step back and say, it's good. On a cross on Good Friday, he'd cry out triumphantly, it's finished. At the end of the book, he'd pronounce, I've made all things new again. I think the statement here that he does all things well ought to take your mind to Eden, but your heart to heaven. The statement that he does all things well is meant to take your mind back to Eden, but to take your heart forward to heaven, to being with Jesus. I think that's how this story ends. But it kind of ends, in a sense, leaving us in some tension of will we join with the crowd in this moment? Will we echo their sentiment? Are we able and capable? Are we willing to say it today with them? That Jesus, there's so much I don't understand, but I believe you meet me personally and compassionately and that you do all things well. And so Jesus, even in the midst of hardship, of brokenness, of being overwhelmed, I'm willing to trust you and take the next step and move forward rather than being paralyzed or leaving Jesus. No, you love me personally, compassionately, Jesus, I believe that you do all things well. I'm ready to move forward with you. That's the invitation of this story. And so, Jesus, we pause to look your direction and to thank you for your love for us that is personal. That you care for us as individuals. Jesus, that you hear our prayers, that you answer them, that you arrive so gently. That, Jesus, you have a deep sense of compassion for us. That, that you are near the brokenhearted. We believe it. That you sigh and grieve and moan and groan with us in the moments that are so difficult for us. Jesus, it's what we believe to be true about you. And so, Jesus, we tell you, we're, we're willing to say it. You do all things well. Jesus, our world is broken. You do all things well. Jesus, our lives are difficult. Jesus, you do all things well. God, life is hard and overwhelming. You do all things well. Jesus, things are broken that we wish were fixed, but Jesus, you do all things well. Jesus, people are sick and we love them, but Jesus, you do all things well. Jesus, we've waited and hoped 
you've prayed and trusted, you do all things well. God, we're willing by faith to say it, that Jesus, it's what we believe, that you do all things well. Jesus, walk with us this week. Jesus, sigh with us this week. Jesus, bring people into our lives with skin on them to sit with us this week. Jesus, be present with us as we move forward in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.